My name is Scott Challoner, and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. As regular listeners of our show will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership, which come from those real and authentic leaders that go out there every morning and make this country work. And I'm delighted to welcome one of our very own Leaders' Council members onto the show today in the form of Adwa Owusu Banahene, Director of TOBS Consultancy Limited. Um, Adwa is a specialist in public sector construction procurement and contracts, and we'll be talking all about that and skills on today's episode. Um, Adwa, very warm welcome to you and thank you for joining us on the show. It's a real pleasure having you. Oh, thank you, Scott. Um, it's a pleasure to be on the show and look forward to the discussion today. Yes, looking forward to it uh, myself as well. And uh, I'm just going to sort of cast minds back to uh, the Leaders' Council's recent special report, which was an investigative piece um, into the Government Skills and Post-16 Education Act. And of course, you contributed to that uh, yourself, Adwa. And uh, you wrote in that report that um, effective collaboration and cohesive coordination is going to be required between government, employers, uh further education, stakeholder groups, to be able to guarantee the integrated approach that ministers were looking for to efficiently deliver something called local skills improvement plans. And those plans are what the government intends to sort of put industry back at the heart of skills provision, make sure that, you know, that further education is delivering the skills that industry needs. Um, So when we talk about that cohesive approach that's needed between everybody, um, what ought that approach to consist of, in uh, your view, Adwa? Well, um, the the points I made in in the report with regards to that cohesive um, and collaborative approach is, is, is based on, you know, years of experience and learning within, you know, the contracts and procurement space. And as a contract and um, procurement specialist within the construction industry, I know very well the importance of transitioning you know, from procurement execution to contract delivery. Mm. And many, many often, many times, um, the realization of benefits and um, outcomes and output from procurement to contract delivery is lost. And many issues. Um, with delivery and risk to delivery and relationships uh, are born out of um, the lack of understanding and lack of clarity of scope, key deliverables and and, um, important clauses that are are within contracts. And, you know, this this is usually based on um, due to the fact that um, contracts are executed and um, often, what well, we use we use the term thrown over the fence um, from procurement to contract delivery without the integration, without the collaboration, without the coordination between procurement teams and contract delivery teams, and this causes issues. And when when delivery teams do not understand the basis for the contract and the intended benefits. Of the of the procurement, um, with that that is lost during the delivery process. So this is the basis for for the point that I made about cohesion and um, collaboration between parties. So we're talking about the the skills, the local skills and improvement plan, and this is going to be delivered. Well, firstly, let's talk about the the development. Mm. So the development is going to be headed by the um, employers' representative bodies that are nominated by the department or the Secretary of State. 
they will have to work with employers, with providers, with stakeholder groups, for example, local authorities, the um, mayoral um, um, authorities and local enterprise partners. These are all different organizations with different competing priorities Mm. coming together to ensure the development of the local skills. So that's that's a, a, a a lot of priorities, a lot of directions, a lot of approaches that are all coming together to ensure that this plan works and it delivers what the government is is intending to do. So you will need engagement from all these parties. You will need engagement and collaboration from all these parties to ensure that the intended um, benefits are delivered from the skills plan. So as as a body, the employer representatives that are nominated need to need the buy-in of employers. They need the buy-in of providers like the further education colleges, system colleges, and institute um, institutions that provide further education. They will need the buy-in of them. They will need them to understand the importance of. What what is being what is being um, they're being tasked with, or what they have a duty to do, and in mm. in doing that, they they will be able to then ensure that you know, from from the local skills and improve, improvements plan, it's it's leveling up opportunities. So it's putting employers at the heart of it, but at the same time, you need to ensure that um, the skills that are being drawn up as priorities or the areas that are being identified as gaps, that providers have the knowledge, have the capacity, have the funding to be able to provide. So at the end of um, the development phase, there will be a report. So in line with the government guidance on the local skills and improvement plan, there is a duty for the employers' representative bodies to draft a report at the end of the development phase. Mm. And that report will highlight key actionable priorities that providers need to deliver. For providers to deliver that, they will need to understand what, what that entails, and they will need to, in turn, plan for their resources and ensure that their teams are equally um, developed and ready to take on board the actionable priorities that they need to deliver in order to meet the the, the priorities within the local um, employment plan. So, as you can see, it's a grand a, a grand task. Mm. It's no mean feat, and all areas, all elements. All organisations need to be joined up in order to ensure that the, the issues, the needs, and the the approach is understood, and in order to be able to deliver it. So this is why I say that an integrated approach is needed. And mm. uh, from my my view and my thinking. All areas will need to understand their roles and responsibilities. So the the government guidance on the local skills plan de- um, development and delivery, and also accountability, is quite comprehensive. But it will be on each body, each employer, each provider that takes part in the development process to upskill their team in understanding the the provisions in there, and in order to 
be able to deliver that. And also there are key roles and responsibilities that are identified within within the guidance. And again, it's the onus is on each member of this group that will come together to develop the plan, to understand their role and how they're contributing to, to the plan and how they will deliver the plan to ensure that it's effective and, and it, it meets and achieves the intended benefits of, of the legislation. Exactly right. And I suppose the challenge, as you say, the fact that it is no mean feat is the fact that this is a group of organisations that have been off doing their own thing, working in silos for, well, decades now. And now they're expected to obviously come together and collaborate. And it's just trying to, you know, deliver that with a cohesive strategy that's going to be the uh, the big challenge there, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a big challenge, right? Um, because you've got, as, we, as I um, touched on already, there are competing priorities. Um, and also there are tensions between um, what, what, what is deliverable and what is feasible or what is viable, right? So funding is going to be a key issue, yeah. And um, providers, will need to ensure that there, there is a right balance between delivering the priorities and also the viability and the feasibility of the priorities that are identified. So during the, the development and an engagement phase, this is where the employer's representative bodies that are leading the, the development of the plan needs to ensure that the strategy and the, the approach picks out key these key issues and they are addressed properly before uh, the, the plans are put together and the priorities are identified. All challenges and all issues need to be highlighted so that they, they, are, they are addressed and, and dealt with to ensure that when we get to the delivery phase, the, there is a smooth sailing and any issues that come out can, can, can be addressed accordingly. Yeah, definitely. Certainly needs an approach um, of that ilk, doesn't it? And um, I just want to point out something else that you've kind of rightfully identified as another failing um, in sort of helping the skills gap be exacerbated, become worse than it is. And that failing that you pointed out was the uh, the lack of career mentorship um, at, uh, for young people at particular ages, um, certainly early on in their formative years while they're in school. And uh, you've mentioned that uh, people from disadvantaged backgrounds, including those from ethnic minorities, are particularly left worse off um, by that as well um how do we kind of remedy that situation um how do we kind of get these careers advisors who are going to be sort of directing young people towards technical qualifications into schools because quite often there's there's a lack of engagement there and what we're missing out on is um actually you know bringing people up obviously the social mobility side but we're also missing out Mm -hmm. on an opportunity to address the uh the labor shortage as a whole aren't we yeah, absolutely. And as, as you rightly said, it's, it's getting it's getting career advisors in into the schools. But what what I, I believe, and this is where again integration and um, cohesion and collaboration is is paramount. So uh, besides duty, you know, um, organisations deliver in accordance with you know, what what the what the the pertaining issues are and the pertaining priorities are and where where the the biggest issues are they will chat they will channel energies and resources that way um, and so um where, where you have underrepresented groups or pe- 
people that comes from low socioeconomic background, where the the the, the support and the the assistance is lacking, you, 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 organizations tend to not focus on that area. And sometimes it's it's because it's difficult. It's mm. it, it's not well understood the challenges that the, these groups of, um, got, um these groups face. It's not well understood by organizations, by institutions, and therefore sometimes it's easier to 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 um not not delve too deep into it and to put a, a common approach. But my view is that we need a tailor a tailor made solution because you know the intersectionality of race, social economic background, ethnic background, and uh, it, all the other protected characteristics present unique challenges for individuals mm. in terms of their 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 educational attain, attainments in terms of their life um outcomes and their life progressions there are unique challenges and barriers that that presents and in order for organizations to really um into understanding these challenges and breaking down barriers, there needs to be a tailor-made solution. So there needs to be a needs-based analysis. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm. So we can take career, we can take career advisors into the school, and they can do a presentation and and, and advise pupils of what is available. But sometimes the um, young people from ethnic minority backgrounds or you know disadvantaged backgrounds they don't understand the, some of the information some of the terminology some of the approaches that are being presented and it's only or even if they understand they for themselves don't believe that that's for them or even going as far back as maybe their their homes their parents do not believe that that's a pathway for them so it goes even beyond just going to the schools and making a presentation and and and, and providing um awareness of yes yeah, increasing awareness of pathways there needs to be a, a design um, of a needs-based assessment with these identified groups to really understand their needs and to tailor any provisions to their needs and this, I believe, will go far into bridging that labour gap. Because yes, it's great that you're you're improving employment um, opportunities and you're improving opportunities with with employers being at the centre of the skills plan. But what about the the, the supply side? Are young people desiring the the employment opportunities that are being are being um, generated? So it's a it's a it's a balance between ensuring that the dem the, the supply side is going to meet the demand side, and young people are going to see the employment opportunities that are are being created as for them. They're going to perceive because perception is a a, a, a very important thing. Mm. And if I don't perceive that that's for me, I'm not going to approach it. I'm not going to engage in it. And all the efforts to increase accessibility and widen participation is not going to prove fruitful and beneficial if from if a young person from a low socioeconomic background don't see those opportunities as for them. And this is where, again, representation is so important. So the careers people that are going to the schools, are they representative? When we go into employment um, 
organizations and that environment can they see people that look like them in that em em environment and therefore make them aspire to come into that environment so these are all very um important issues that that needs to be addressed in order to ensure that the supply side is able to meet the demand side yeah, so we talk a lot, don't we, about the perceptions of certain areas of industry and why people don't want to go and do certain jobs like in construction, like in engineering. And what you said there is that the key actually is, you know, how are you pitching these industries to young people? Are they actually understand what you're saying to them? And can they relate to it? Can they see people like themselves, people they identify with in that role and therefore think, you know, maybe this is for me. And that's the key really to sort of starting to really change minds, isn't it? It's not just all about just going there and saying, oh, wow, look how much money you can actually earn being a builder or being an engineer. It goes far deeper than that, doesn't it? Absolutely. And you know, we, we, most of the young people that we're looking at now or we're targeting into that we need to target into the industries, for example, we're talk, let, let's talk about construction, which is facing unprecedented um, labour shortages. Mm. Young people that we're looking at, you said we, we should be looking at what we call the generation, the Gen Zs, they will call themselves, the Generation um, Z. And they are more, more than just how much that... Um, salary that they can gain they're more about you know um ethical issues they're more about work-life balance flexibility health and safety we're talking about the green economy the environmental issues so the the industry needs to be able to uh, change the brand and the image of itself and i know traditionally construction has been seen as a man's world and mm. it's all about the labor intensive work but it has evolved technology has enabled it and there's so many different roles within construction but all young people see is hard hats and men and if that's the message and the imagery that is there then that it prevents young people especially young girls from wanting to get into that industry and even and even guys we can't we can't destroy it people want to do jobs where they will find fulfillment and satisfaction and if they don't see that that path is for them they can't see the different roles the varying roles within that industry and the possibilities that it can generate for them then it it, it doesn't appeal to them so the industry really needs to come together and there needs to be a campaign to change that image and the perception of the industry and to send that message out to young people there's so many more to more jobs, more roles to construction than the hard hat and working on site. Exactly right. And you mentioned a key thing as well there um, about um, sort of the uh, the Generation Z priority or Generation Z, however we want to call it. And they um, talk, they're, they're very, you know, they're very conscious about sustainability. They're very conscious about the environment. They're very conscious about their impact on the planet. Um, we obviously have the net zero agenda in the UK, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And the construction sector is one of those that is having to modernise and make sure that it refines its processes to cut down on its carbon footprint. Um, the industry clearly needs to do a lot to become greener, but procurement can play a role in helping it do that, can't it? And if that's, I think that's something that we should uh, we should also talk about. Absolutely. Um, procurement is at the centre. And if you, you, you look at the UK economy, you look at the government spend of, over a third and 300 billion of spend goes on to public sector procurement. And so procurement has a key role to play in the in the green agenda and the net zero um, carbon agenda. And when, when, when um, 
services are being tendered, when goods are being tendered, when when public spend is is being um, directed out. The key for procurement is is to ensure that you know an end to end strategy is 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 um, developed. And the the usually procurement is concerned with costs, and when it comes to construction and net zero, it's about capital costs. And we need to move away from capital costs and the initial delivery costs. We need to take a, a total end life cycle um, costing approach. So we need to look at the life cycle cost and the end to end costing. So only looking at the capital cost is not good enough. If within the operation, the energy um, and technology and material that has been used has it's resulting on high level of operational costs, energy bills are going up, then that is not really um a benefit because mm. the, the, the savings that have been generated through the capital and infrastructure savings is gonna be um, easily and quickly eroded by the operational cost. So we have to offset operational costs with capital costs to ensure that the, the savings are real savings and they're not going to be um, eaten up when it, get, when it gets to the operational um, stage with, with the cost of operation and energy bills. And we also have to think about, you know, the the, the, user, the user stage where in this current climate, energy poverty is a real thing and mm. we want we, ha we want to ensure that when when construction when buildings go into the the occupation phase that we're ensuring that people are not are not having to pay at odds because of decisions we made upfront in the process so it's really important that procurement puts this at the heart of it and this is where we go into you know when we are designing procurement we need to ensure that at, at the moment, we we we, we include net, net zero um, criteria as part of the award, and that the selection process uh, has sustainability at the heart of it. But I believe that we don't go far enough. You know, some of the the percentages, you know, what we call when we when we are doing public procurement, we will apportion what we call weighting to criteria or priority areas. So, for example, sustainability. Currently, and most often, you don't see no more than out of 100, maybe 5% is awarded to sustainability. So it means sustainability and net zero only has the influence um, in the outcome of 5%. And other areas, such as the construction, the design, has much, much more of an impact. And then we wonder why it's not really being delivered, because it didn't have much of an influence. In, in the initial process, in the award of the the um, the selected party, so they they didn't have to um, think very difficult and hard about how they were going to approach the net zero because when they look at the message we sent out with our weightings on the procurement, they can tell that although it's important, it's not that important as compared to the approach to the, the delivery or compared to risk management. Because risk management, for example, where maybe we're apportioning 20%. So clearly, when we're working with experienced um, contractors, developers, and, and bidders of public sector procurement, they are able to read 
into the uh, design of evaluation systems to understand the level of importance we placed on criteria. And so procurement needs to be able to push sustainability higher up at the agenda to work with biz the businesses to ensure that they understand the importance that sustainability is going to have on the outcome uh, when it comes to the weightings so that the right weightings are given to sustainability in, in, in the design of the, of the procurement and the evaluation system. Moving it from the design of um, procurement and the evaluation system, mm. I, I spoke already about contract management and contract delivery. And what happens, as I said, usually when you don't have a joined up approach between procurement and contract delivery and where you have procurement teams working in silos, executing contracts and then throwing it over the fence to contract delivery teams, you end up with contract delivery teams not really understanding the promises that um, or, um, contractors or bidders or um, developers have made in the process and which are all in the contract. But often, Contracts are not read, they're not understood, and the the deliverables and the priorities are not understood. And therefore, contract deliverers and contract managers are not really getting the benefits that have been um, negotiated, that, that have been agreed and are party to the contract. They're not, they're not getting the benefits. They're not following up. They're not monitoring to ensure that you said you would do X, Y, and Z, and therefore you're doing it and we're monitoring and we're ensuring that it's having the right outcome. So again, it all goes back to, it goes down to ensuring a joined up approach from procurement and into contract management. An organization needs to start looking at these two areas as one and not two, because procurement cannot be a standalone and contract management and delivery cannot be a standalone if we want to ensure that we, we deliver the net zero agenda well. Exactly right. And um, the government, I suppose, has looked at procurement somewhat with its uh, sort of new procurement bill that is out there. But does that sort of legislation kind of go far enough in addressing some of the key issues? And are there any sort of real benefits within the legislation that you feel are going to actually make a difference? Um, so on, on, on the initial green paper, it, it sounds positive and promising. But again, it comes back to the conversation we're having right now. It's in the, it, it's in the implementation that we will, mm. we will know how far reaching it will go and also any further guidances that come out. So there, there are aspirations in there to ensure that the social value is at the heart of, of the new procurement agenda. Value for money is at the heart of the new procurement agenda and also an, an innovation through um, SMEs is, is there and I believe that that is the means to get the sustainable agenda. SMEs and, and innovation through technology is going to play a huge role and the new procurement um, bill that is going through the motions at the moment allows for more flexibility and it allows for more innovation but how it will be implemented is where we will speak we will we, we, the, we will understand more how effective it will be being able to bring in um, innovative technologies innovative um, construction methodologies like modular construction which which is going to be very beneficial and also materials that will en enable 
um, organisations to reduce costs and also ensure that the, the sustainability priorities are, are adhered to is going to be an interesting challenge. And this, again, will go back into how how flexible the flexible competitive procedure is in, in enabling um, or contracting authorities to design a procurement that really suits their uh, the, the net zero carbon agenda and allows for procurement organisations to dialogue, to negotiate, to discuss real innovative solutions with um, contracting authorities and also with the SMEs and, and the innovative um, industry because we believe that local organisations, small and medium enterprise organisations are able and flexible enough to provide the technologies that are needed to, to ensure the sustainability agenda. That is how far the procedures that are being introduced will enable procurement organisations to be able to bring that in. But um, we, we are um, excited and we, we believe that the aspirations are well well intended. Mm, yeah, there are some promising things in there. And I suppose um, one of the other positives is the fact that as well as focusing on the net zero agenda, the bill is seeking to sort of hasten that procurement process, isn't it? So developers and contractors can actually deliver homes at a quicker rate um, that are environmentally friendly and are going to sort of help solve the housing crisis that we're currently in. Absolutely, and I think that, that that's one of the main benefits of the, of the bill um, is that speed and simplicity of the procedures. Again, we do not know what the guidances are, what the, the procedure will be. Um, and so we, we, we are in anticipation of that. But uh, currently under the you know the public contract regulations that we use, um, which are imposed from the EU directives, there are strict rules, strict um, timescales that have to be adhered. And usually these are protracted and it results in very lengthy procurements, very costly procurements, which prevents um, small and medium enterprise organisations to really engage with government organisations. Mm. So this is where we're, we're, we're the, the in proposed um, procedures and frameworks will be welcomed in terms of really shortening timelines to um, engage with the market and to get a solution. Because if the procurement process can really be shortened, um, you know, now the average timescale from engaging the market to having a, a contract in place can be, depending on how complex the procurement is and the solution required is, can be anywhere between a year to three years. And that within that timescale, things change. You know, cost of inflation, suppliers go out of business, we lose... Um, the, the labour, we lose capacity, we lose capability. So many things change within that process. So it's important that we shorten the timescale. And I think that's one of the key benefits of the new process. Mm, absolutely. And let's hope that it really takes hold. Sorry, Let me take a sip of water. Yeah, go on. Yeah, of course, and we've got to hope, haven't we, that it really sort of takes hold, uh, don't we, uh, to make sure that, obviously, you know, we really see the changes that the, the bill intends to make. The aspiration is there, as you say, but it's in the implementation that's going to be the uh, the key there. 
Um, we are just about out of time on the uh, the podcast uh, today, Adwo, unfortunately. But um, I have to say, um, it's been a fantastic and really insightful discussion welcoming you on to talk about all of these issues around skills and around procurement. And, you know, I would actually really enjoy the opportunity to welcome you back onto the show in future when, you know, the bill is a little bit further down the line. And once we know more about what that's going to look like, just to, you know, reassess the situation and see where we're at at that point in time. That would be absolutely awesome. Yes, we're looking forward to the, as I was saying, the bill and more more guidance on, on the implementation. And I think a conversation on the implementation and the guidance will be excellent in terms of ensuring that it will it will generate the intended benefits of the of the um, aspirations. Yeah, and we anticipate that um, eagerly and uh, we wait for the uh, the details to be forthcoming from governments as we always do. Um, for now, Adwa, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. It's been an incredible pleasure having you and by all means do take care and do stay safe with all still going on as well. Well, thank you very much for the invite and it has been a pleasure. It certainly was a pleasure welcoming Adwa Awusu Banahene from TOBS Consultancy onto today's programme and I do hope that everybody tuning in thoroughly enjoyed the interview today. Um, if you do have your own comment to make on the issues that we've discussed on today's programme then you can write into leaderscouncil.co.uk slash contact hyphen us to leave that view with us or you can even apply to be on the programme yourself to share your view or the story of your own business if you had an organisation or a company of your own and that will be via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply where you could be the next person to appear on our program talking through issues like we've discussed with Adwa today. Um, until next time, you have been tuning in to the Leaders Council podcast, and I have been your host, Scott Chaloner. Please take care, everyone, and goodbye. <laughs>